Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by the greatest star I know, the funniest girl on the planet, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. So if my intro of you didn't completely give it away, um, why don't you remind us of the clue about what show we'll be getting to know this episode? Yes, well, I believe the clue was that Stephen Sondheim was approached to write this show and said that he didn't want to do it partially because Mary Martin was not Jewish. And, of course, what we are talking about is the show that would become Funny Girl, which ended up being written by Julie Stein, Bob Merrill, and Isabel Leonard. Um, And at that time, Mary Martin was attached to play Fanny Bryce, and Stephen Sondheim felt that that was not the right choice to play Fanny Bryce. So he did not write the show, and that would have been a very different show. Very different show, and there it's also not the only person to turn down the project for that reason or in that genre of reasons, which we'll get into in other in other segments. It's a really interesting, I mean, for us as well known as this show is, it's one of those shows that like is well known, but I'm like, but is it? Because I don't think you actually know what the show is. <laughs> People I mean, know the movie and know Barbara Streisand's performance, but they don't actually know like what happens in it. It's like Camelot in that way. It's a it's a messy, it's a messy one. Yes, I think I think you're totally right. It definitely like exists in people's minds in a different way than it exists on the page and on the stage. So uh, it's so funny. We went from fun home to funny girl. Um, so we're just having all the fun this spring. Uh, <laughs> but uh, before we get too far, uh, it's time for the speed test. Hudson's floor wax doesn't matter. 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 Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Funny Girl in one minute. So yes, I will be attempting to boil down a great portion of Fanny Bryce's life into one minute. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> well, the show boils down a big chunk of Fanny's life into one issue. So, you know. We'll it sure see. does. It All should. right. Okay. Ready? Uh, rat-a-tat-tat and go. Okay. So you got Fanny Bryce. Um, it's really like, first off, the show starts with famously Hello Gorgeous. She's like in the theater, sees herself. And then it's basically a flashback to like everything in her like performing life and love life prior to uh, prior to this moment. So uh, she auditions for like the smaller like vaudeville theater um, and they don't want her because she looks funny. She's not pretty enough to be a chorus girl. And they say no, but then she manages to get in because her friend Eddie like plays the piano and all this stuff. And then Nikki Arnstein, Nikki Arnstein, Nikki Arnstein, what a beautiful name, uh, runs in, uh, sees her and is like, oh, I'm going to put you in touch with Florence Ziegfeld uh, and manages to get her job at the Ziegfeld Follies, which she does get, um, becomes a huge star there, kind of uh, giving everyone a headache in the process, but becoming a huge star and falls in love with Nikki Arnstein. Uh, he's very problematic and uh, lives a life of like, you know, light crime and gambling, gets thrown in jail and she decides to love him anyway. And but then they're going to get divorced. It's all drama between the two of them. That's the minute. And yep, it is the story of Fanny Bryce. And this show is mostly the story of Fanny Bryce's terrible relationship with a terrible man and husband. Alongside her rise to to stardom and how that both fuels and hinders her career, really. So, yeah. So with that, that brings us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? 
where we talk about the purpose behind the show. What is the central idea that is uh, moving the story forward? So I, um, I've got I've got something for this. I don't know how good this is um, because I feel like that you know as we constantly discuss in the segment, there are different ways to look at this question, right? I often look at it from a character perspective. You look at it from a greater kind of hero's journey perspective. But I do think with, in the case of this, a bio-musical, um, in a very true sense of bio-musical without an actual um, source, uh, really, I mean, we'll get into that. It's kind of uh, witchy, uh, witchy. It's 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 a little bit of a sticky widget, um, like, because there are, anyway, we'll get into that in another section. It's hard to figure out other than centrally, like their relationship and the complexities of of um, the relationship between Nikki Arnstein and um, Fanny Bryce, it's hard to say that this show has like an organizing principle and idea, uh, I think. Um, but if if it does, I'm going to go out and, and I mean, I think it probably does. But my best guess or understanding of what its central idea is, is appearance and expectation versus reality. And um, we see it a lot with like all of the characters. There's so much, especially in the first chunk about Fanny's appearance and how there are certain things expected of her because of her gender, because of her appearance, because of her talent. There are a lot of things that are pressed upon her um, that don't actually reflect uh, who she is and what she's capable of. And in the same way, she has this idealized view of what a relationship should be and what her partner is and who he is versus the reality of who he is. Um, and I think that is a real like crux um, for all of the characters in their conflict with each other is, is I don't want to say entirely appearance versus reality, because I think that that is um, a little more um, like, I think that lives in a, like a more fantastical place often when we talk about it. Um, so I do want to make sure it's like appearance and expectation versus reality and kind of the world we craft for ourselves and how we choose to view ourselves and the ones we love um but you know that's a very big idea that i'm not i i'm not sure that i feel super confident in that in that take but annika what would you say is this show's why well this is an interesting one because you know i have a lot of issues with this show um and i would say for this particular section i mean obviously we'll go into this uh, more later i think the show thinks it's about this woman learning to stand on her own two feet ultimately do i think that is actually what the show manages to do no i do not um but if i look at the end of the show and like her finale, which is her singing Don't Rain on My Parade again after Nikki Arnstein has left her, which bothers me because if she doesn't make that choice, he does. But okay. Um, you know, I, I think what they want us to feel is that she's like, yeah, it's fine. I'm a survivor and I'm going to keep on going. Um, again, not totally successful in that story. To me, reading it, like part of my problem with the show is... It, to me, it, it's hard to see it as anything other than like the tragic tale of a powerful, talented, awesome woman who only thinks she has value if this garbage man thinks she is attractive, um, which I think could be an interesting story about like how much women are are forced into this uh, place where 
it doesn't matter how funny or talented or amazing or, you know, successful you are, if you're not beautiful, um, then, you know, you like the best thing you could be is desired and beautiful, which is certainly of, of utmost importance to Fanny, as you've, as you've pointed out, there's, there's certainly a lot. And I think you're, you have provided a very elegant, uh, like version of that. Um, so I think part of the problem with the show basically is that it is a little confused as to what it is about. Um, I think the first act indicates something slightly different than what the second act indicates. And, um, I feel like if the show were being written today, and I really, I don't always, I really kind of don't love that argument because I feel like, well, it wasn't written today. The point of like a lot of shows is, you know, we're, we can't hold these shows to standards of now, but I do feel like the story is muddled a little bit. It, it, it doesn't, it's not totally clear to me what this show um, thinks it is about. I think that what I said is what it thinks it's about. Well, and um, it's, yeah. Not to interrupt you. It's, no, it, no, no. That's kind of it. I was just rambling off. It's, it's like, it's a, it's kind of a mess a little it, bit that it is way. A bit of a mess. Because I feel like it, it has this internal struggle between trying to be like a musical comedy of the time and also push forward a little bit a certain like narrative character in a way, like in a star vehicle type way that a, certain, a lot of shows emulate after it. And we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about that as we get into it. But it does kind of have these like trappings of musical comedy that aren't really serving it. Yeah. And, and yet, like, is it about her learning to stand on her own two feet? She kind of is this, like, force of nature. She bursts out the door as this force of nature that, like, continually just is a force of nature and then almost is brought down, but decides she's going to still be a force of nature and, like, kind of go after him again at the end. Like, like yeah. no continually go after him. Like, no one's going to bring me down. Like, yeah. And no one's going to rain on my parade, like, because I love him. And I, so is it even that journey? Cause like, I think you're right. Like I, the, the show you just described, I'm far more interested in. And like, it does sound a little bit like, but that, I don't know that that's, yeah. really, I think that's what they would like for people to think in a contemporary sense. But I, it, even, you know, it's funny you talk about like the show being written today. You know, we were just talking like allegedly Harvey Firestein like wrote, a new book, but like, what did Harvey Firestein really change? And like, it was kind of rewritten today. It's, it's a really peculiar show in that, in that. It really is. And I I saw the revival of it recently, which was the first time I'd ever seen it on stage. I I watched the movie many, many years ago. And um, I was kind of stunned that, you know, in five minutes from the end of the show, Fanny Bryce, fascinating, groundbreaking, female comedian like in this world where women did not where jewish women did not do what she did you know this super interesting figure is like saying to zigfeld like well sorry i'm probably gonna have to quit the show if my if my terrible husband wants me to i was like this character this is sad this is so sad like this is where this character is this this woman who in the beginning of the show has been like i'm gonna do whatever it takes i'm the biggest star and now she is the biggest star and she's like well sorry flo i'm gonna have to give it up so i can like be there for my husband who hates that i'm powerful like what a weird place for this story to go to and then like the the repri- as you as you mentioned like the reprise i think at the end like is a little ambiguous like it it just it reminded me a little bit of the um you know, the the more most recent revival of Carousel when they did a very smart thing with What's the Use of Wondering, where she's singing What's the Use of Wondering, and, you know, uh, Carrie and um, 
I can't remember the lady. Anyway, her, her friends are in the background, like watching her sing this song and being like, oh God, we are watching our friend in an abusive relationship. And I feel like that is what is missing from this show is that there are people in the show who are kind of like, he's not the greatest, but like the show kind of at the end is like, yep, you know, probably she's going to have to quit to be with this guy. <laughs> like, you're just like, what am I supposed to feel about this? This show is not telling me. And I, I really can't re- believe that this revival had someone come in and, and deal with this book and not deal with that question of like, wait, what? This is a terrible thing for this. This is this woman is has been so, as you said, like beaten down. So, Annika, to usher us into our deep dive, take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Funny Girl. We can never go back to before. So, for this section, I thought I would dive into not Fanny Bryce, who, while she is totally fascinating and badass, as I said, um, is the the main character of this musical. So, some of her life is in there, obviously different, very interesting person um look her up read about her actual career which would be nice which is not gone into enough in the show i think um i thought i would talk about someone else uh which is the book writer of this show isabel leonard she is a rare example of a female book writer in broadway history and she too is a badass and as much as i have some problems with the uh portrayal of fanny and nikki and um the general i find this book a bit sexist which is kind of interesting because like you know a female book writer you i think there's a perception that like that's going to fix all the problems and it doesn't always i mean she's writing of her time but she's a really interesting person um and i did not know about her and i should have before this so isabel leonard book writer of funny girl was born Isabel Hochdorf in Brooklyn in 1915. Uh, She was Jewish. Her father was a dentist. And she had polio as a child and wore leg braces for about 10 years. So she became an avid reader. And one of the things that she read all the time was Hollywood magazines. And she just fixated on Hollywood. She wanted to be a film director. Um, And keep in mind, born in 1915. So this is, she's very early for that to be a thing, really. Um, After she went to Smith College and NYU, she worked in the mailroom of MGM in New York, but was fired for attempting to form a union. She was a communist, um, and this was something that popped up a few times in her career, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, So she moved to L.A. in 1937, and she worked a few different jobs there. And in 1941, was promoted from script girl to contract writer at 20th Century Studios. So from then on, she began writing screenplays, and her first film... The Affairs of Martha opened in 1942. She wrote 27 more films over the course of her career, including the Oscar-nominated Love Me or Leave Me and The Sundowners. So she was very successful. Um, In 1966, she won the Laurel Award for Screenwriting Achievement from the Writers Guild of America, which she was always very proud of. And by 1967, she was commanding $100,000 per picture. So so really uh, a successful... uh, female screenwriter, which is so cool. Um, In 1968, she wrote the screenplay for the Funny Girl movie, adapted uh, from her own uh, book for this musical. And she won the Writers Guild of America uh, Award for Best Screenplay for that. And unfortunately, that was her last film because she was killed in a car accident in 1971 when she was only 55. So she had a career that was really cut short. Um, 
The other notable thing, as I mentioned about her career, um, was that she was a communist and she officially left the party in 1945. But when the House Un-American Activities Committee began investigating communist sympathizers in Hollywood, uh, she became what's called a friendly witness. And she named names. She named 20 people as former party members. Um, so obviously that was very uh, controversial and something that is not great. And uh, she regretted it. In 1970, she said she she really was sorry that she had done that. But that is that is an important thing to mention. So um, really kind of a fascinating figure and a, and a great, cool, interesting writer. And it's funny because I really do. I like this script. I don't like where it goes and I don't like... Um, a lot about it but like it, she's a great writer like the the dialogue it's just like a fun world to live in and fanny i like i wish the show were a little bit different because i wish we got to spend more time with with fanny but anyway that is isabel leonard so now i'm going to turn it over to michael fling to talk about isabel leonard's collaboration with some other people to make funny girl the musical in our segment putting it together bit by bit putting it together piece by piece only way to make a work of art where we talk about how the show was literally put together. All right, so much of this account is from uh, Julie Stein's uh, biography. Um, Julie, I think the, it, I think it's called Julie, the composer, the story of composer Julie Stein is what it's called, um, is, is the source of a lot of this information, though I think depending on where you look, everyone's got a story about the development of Funny Girl because it was quite the dramatic process and uh, certainly cemented Barbara Streisand's status as a legend. Um, and one of the all-time greats. I, I think I, I can't. I cannot say that I am a Barbra Streisand historian, as they absolutely exist. Um, but her rise is very much along as like pop superstar and also musical theater, like you know, star-making performance are very, very. They cohabitate. They coexist. Um, so I, I don't know that you have one without the other. But it is an interesting, like, it definitely catapults her into a stardom that uh, she is now. It catapults her, puts her on the A-list, for sure. I thought you were about to say, I am I can't call myself a Barbra Streisand fan. And I was going to be like, what? No, I, that's, that's, no, absolutely. What? I can't, I, I just know that there are people who, like, live and breathe Barbara. And I do not live and breathe Barbara. But of course, yes. I, I'm, what, what am I, a farmer? What are you accusing <laughs> You accuse me of being straight, Annika? Like, what? <laughs> okay. Um, I would never. <laughs> never. Absolutely never. Okay. So um, the engine behind the creation of the show is really Ray Stark, um, the producer, who was married to Fanny and Nick's daughter, Frances. So he initially commissioned a biography of Fanny, which was to be called The Fabulous Fanny, which also would be a great title for this, by the way. I stumbled upon that, and I was like, oh, what, what a great title, The Fabulous Fanny. Um, but Although... I just feel obligated to mention that fanny is a slang term for vagina in England and Australia. And so all of these titles are kind of hilarious if you think about that. Well, fanny's also like, you know, your rear end. So it's funny in many ways. Um, so yeah. Uh, but also, um, but he ultimately did not like that biography and um, halted the publication. So then he started to go down a biopic route, like, let's make a movie out of it, um, and asked, uh, like, 10 different writers to write a screenplay uh, before Isabel Leonard submitted a screenplay entitled My Man. Uh, Mary Martin happened to read the screenplay and liked it and thought it should be a musical, uh, which, you know, asterisk footnote here, Mary Martin, like, as a 
creative like was mary martin broadway's original creative producer she's out here like reading these scripts being like make this a musical make that a musical and they're all like incredibly successful like where's that story like mary martin was like out here like that's i feel like she's the only person that like she's like out here making all these great things even though she ends up not starring in it obviously but like the sound of music like there i think there is a healthy list of mary martin's like that should be a musical like what I, I think you're right. And I feel like Mary Martin's one of those people that the more you read and learn about her, the more you're just floored by, yeah. she's by, like, by sort of like the best friend for people and the greatest, like, you know, support. I mean, she just sounds like a, a, a dream totally, and like, yeah, has a real head for business. Like she's no fool. I mean, that's whenever we talk about the sound of music at some point, we'll talk a lot about Mary Martin because that's, yeah. There are plenty of shows to discuss with Mary Martin. Um, so uh, so Stark uh, went to producer David Merrick, uh, who suggested Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim compose the score, as we alluded to in our clue a little bit. And Sondheim turns it down because uh, Martin, uh, Mary Martin is an ethnic. She isn't Jewish, and he thinks it needs to be a Jewish person, a uh, Jewish girl. So the screenplay is still kind of in simultaneous development, and Jerome Robbins gives that screenplay to Anne Bancroft. Uh, as and thinking like maybe you know she would be a a good vehicle uh, a good star for this um and so stein starts working on the score specifically for her and during that time he meets bob merrill and they write who are you now and music that makes me dance with her voice in mind which i don't really know Anne bancroft's voice but uh, i imagine it's not barbara streisand's voice um so uh, she ultimately departs the project thinking it wasn't for her and uh, because of a past tiff with Bob Merrill, which like, I don't want to know what that tiff is. Um, what's what's that? What's that story? So next, uh, they go to Edie Gourmet uh, to star as Fanny. Uh, and she wanted her husband, Steve Lawrence, uh, to play Arnstein. And uh, everybody was like, yeah, no, we don't want Steve Lawrence. And so Robbins took the project to Carol Burnett, who also turned it down, citing the need for a Jewish girl, which, side note, though Carol Burnett is not jewish she really probably would be fantastic in this role like i would actually i would love to see girl burnett do funny girl i mean um, she she would have killed it she would have killed it like i mean i've been on a little bit of a once my mattress kick uh at the moment which we should talk about offline but uh she's just i mean what a powerhouse so uh and also like good for her for turning it down for not being jewish like good for her that's not easy to do you know carol burnett was not the star that she was that she is now, you know, like at the time. So that's uh, good for her. So Stein then thinks of Barbara Streisand, who he loved and I can get it for you wholesale, which was really her like kind of burst onto the scene with her little number, Miss Marmelstein. Uh, and she was performing down in Greenwich Village. Uh, and so they all went down and, and watched her. Robbins absolutely loved her and asked her to audition. Um, Frances Stark didn't like her, um, but everybody else did. So they hired Streisand on the spot after her audition. So as development is getting along, Isabel Leonard and Jerome Robbins did not get along and had a lot of arguments, um, mainly because Robbins didn't think that she could turn her screenplay into an adequate book of a musical. Uh, and but Ray Stark will not fire her and replace her. He won't he won't uh, let go of her. So Robbins quits. Uh, and so it goes into a weird like couple year limbo period of development. This is all like in like 1962, 63 ish. Um, it goes into a weird limbo period where Bob Fosse briefly took over the project as um, director and allegedly is the reason we have Hello Gorgeous. 
um, in the show and subsequently famously in the movie and um, apparently wanted to cut people um, because he didn't think it was working in the show, uh, but he ultimately quits. So then Merrick brings Garson Cannon to the table shortly um, before um, he departed the project as producer as well. So it's a very dramatic rehearsal process. Streisand did not like Garson Cannon, allegedly mostly because he wanted to cut people from the show, though he was not the only person. Obviously, like I just said, Bob Fosse wanted to cut it too. Um, and Garson Cannon didn't think it was right for the character and uh, didn't want her to sing it, thought it was slowing the show down. Um, but Streisand had already recorded the number as a single for her next album. And everybody, you know, everybody else was like, are you crazy? Like, it's one of the best things she's ever done. It's this phenomenal song. You can't cut it. Um, and so he obviously does not cut it. Um, uh, but this all leads to Barbara Streisand, uh, Barbara Streisand really wanting Jerome Robbins back. Um, and she'll eventually get him back, but not before a lot of drama ensues. So um, audiences loved uh, the number. Uh, and so it was kept, like I said. And um, so they do a tryout in Boston and they're going to go to Philadelphia after. They cut nearly 30 minutes out of the show before they even started previews in Boston. And it was still too long. So they cut another 30 minutes before they went to Philadelphia and then seemingly cut another five songs while in Philadelphia, um, postponing the opening in New York by five weeks um, so they could make all those changes. And during that period, there's some stories that Garson Cannon left. Jerome Robbins was brought back in to oversee Carol Haney's choreography and whatnot. So Streisand gets a little bit of her way. Um, but all the out of town, you know, drama is like, this show's not good. It's not good. She's great. But the book is a problem. It's not working. Um, and then they come into New York to the Winter Garden Theater. And one of those historic nights of Broadway history where Barbara Streisand is launched into stardom and gets a ton of curtain calls. And the show is a massive, massive runaway success. Um, allegedly Barbara Streisand did the show. I mean, she did the show for like almost two years or a certain, uh, at least a year and a half and only missed like one performance um, in that time, I think, or didn't miss a single one. There's a, there's a lot of like mythology around her performance schedule as Fanny Bryce, but, um, but yeah. And then she goes on to the show in London. Um, it is kind of, it debuts on Broadway in a season that is like an incredibly stacked season alongside like Hello Dolly and She Loves Me, and a bunch of these like classic shows. So it gets a bunch of Tony nominations, uh, but not anything, um, but doesn't really win anything, including for Barbara Streisand because of the dominance of Hello, Dolly. Um, and Stepped on Annika's because usually this is where Annika gives our rundown of awards and praise, but of course it then turns into the the movie musical, which um, Hot Take, I think, is dated um, and not incredibly well done. Um but Barbara Streisand does win, uh, ties uh, Catherine Hepburn for Best Actress in uh, a film uh, for her film debut in the movie and into the hearts of every American everywhere and into Ayla Stardom. Can you imagine tying Catherine Hepburn for anything? I, I just listened to a podcast with her, too, where she was, like, really nasty to Jane Fonda, I guess, about, like, the Oscars. Like, she was a really competitive competitive soul which i did not know i that feels right to me i mean i think she like swam in a freezing cold pool every day of the year i feel like she's got that sort of like flinty new england like i will uh, take i will the, take you down world this is the part of the podcast where i wish i had a good katherine hepburn impression so the show is kind of 
famous for not being revived on Broadway since the original production. Um, and uh, we, and so uh, this production, you know, often rumored that various stars were going to do it and kind of take the mantle from Barbara Streisand. Uh, for years, it felt like, you know, for years, it felt like Leah Michelle was going to do it. There was a lot of rumor that Ryan Murphy had the rights and that was going to happen. And then it didn't happen. And then it was going to be Adina Menzel. And then and then it became Beanie Feldstein, who uh, there was a lot of controversy around her casting and her interpretation of the role and her performance. Um, I did see it. I saw it later in the run when I think she had settled into the show. So she de- I think she definitely put the funny in Funny Girl. I I think there is a world in which she probably was a really great fanny. I just think it was not. Ultimately, the show is built around um, the vocal performance, and that's just not really what Beanie brings to the table. Um, so it was a it was a struggle for that. But there was a lot of controversy surrounding Beanie, obviously, um, uh, because she wasn't as vocally as dominant as Barbara Streisand uh, was, and uh, the production wasn't doing super well, and so there was a. Uh, a not very amicable split between Beanie and the production. And they brought in Leah Michelle restaged parts of the show and reopened in the fall and have been, you know, selling out and doing incredible business ever since. Um, you know, as I said, it felt like Leah Michelle was auditioning for this opportunity for 15 years. We've seen her and heard her sing the entire score on Glee. Um, and, you know, so it was not really a surprise that to me, it was not a surprise that she was excellent in the role and everybody says she's excellent in it. I have not seen it. I, I need to see it before she before she she goes. Um, but it it, it really. It. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's it's a. It, she. Yeah, she's, I mean, she's I, good. yeah, like she know she's no fool. She knows how to sing like she's going to sing the crap out of it, you know, and she has comedic chops. She was, uh, you know. Just yeah. so i i have not seen it but anyhow yeah i did she was good she was good but I, but it's it's hard to imagine who is going to come to really give us something that feels i mean I, I i just can't even i just don't even know i don't i don't think we're ever going to see someone who can uh claim anything equal to the title that barbara streisand has on the show um it has been done regionally you know sparsely again you kind of want a star and someone who can really deliver that performance so there are some you know kind of uh historic regional productions starring stephanie j block and and very you know various types uh, across the way who are some of the big broadway broadway names um and i and leslie kritzer somewhere i think um i don't think i'm making that up um but anyhow so it is a not often revived piece though um, the movie has kind of kept it um, in a certain status that uh, as a classic musical. Yes, definitely. The mu- the movie has has made it onto all sorts of lists of best movie musicals, the AFI list. I think Hello Gorgeous is like number 81, I think, on the top uh, movie quotes. Um, you know, it 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 definitely looms large in the imagination. And I think it's part of the reason that uh, this is, this is really a show that is both blessed and cursed to have such a star making performance associated with it. Because as you said, it's, it's just impossible not to feel the long shadow cast by Barbara Streisand in this part um, for this show. 
And with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Don't Rain on My Parade. So let us talk about the big song from this show, Don't Rain on My Parade, which is the end of the first act. Um, I'm thinking now it is possibly a little insane for me to approach the song that is this iconic in this show, but uh, I don't know. I'm I'm intrigued by this song because it's so famous. Um, it's so popular and it is kind of, to me, like 60% gobbledygook that sort of sounds like the right vibe, but uh, is not super specific to the time or place. But you know what? Actually, in thinking about it, I realized that many of the songs that either live in this place in a show, which is the end of the first act, um, if you think of like Defying Gravity, if you think of uh, um, Everything's Coming Up Roses, like uh, a lot of these songs... Or, or you have a song even that is like a sort of um, tonally similar, like big song sung by main character uh, that is anthemic, feels anthemic, um, like even something like Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Um, many of these songs are sort of 60% gobbledygook and vibes and much less specific for what's actually happening in the plot. Um, I don't know. I have to think about that a little bit more. It's kind of an interesting thing. Like um, if a lot of the, I mean, like think of Defying Gravity and like all of uh, the the lyrics of Defying Gravity, which are sort of like, I'd sooner try Defying Gravity. I mean, it's just like kind of like one idea that just keeps re getting repeated a million times. Um, I don't know. So this is not exactly the place that we need like great plot moment. Um, but we do get a lot of metaphors, so many metaphors in this song sung by Fanny about uh, her to decision, which is, of course, to leave the Follies where she's supposed to be heading off to Chicago um, to, to work on the show, to put in more numbers and stuff. And she's leaving that um, and going to New York so that she can follow Nick Arnstein to Monte Carlo, where he's going to do a big deal because uh, she and he have just spent like a blissful few weeks in Baltimore um, buying expensive suitcases and generally being in love and doing each other at restaurants to dippy songs that I don't like. Um, anyway, so that is this moment. She has just made this decision to give up on her career and to go after Nick, um, which rightfully so many of the people in her life have said that is insane don't do that what are you doing um Ziegfeld has said you're I'm done with you if you do this um Eddie and some of her friends have said like what are you are you sure that this is what he wants and she's like I'm gonna make it what he wants so it's a really ballsy thing for her to have done um probably not the best decision um it kind of works out in the short term obviously it doesn't really work out in the long term that's what the entire show is basically about but we get this amazing song that is just full of all of the feelings that she's feeling in this moment um, and full of some really strange and questionable metaphors. So let's just dive in and, and hear what this song actually is. And obviously I'm going to be using the uh, original Broadway cast recording, Barbra Streisand, 
who owns the song. Don't tell Lee Michelle I said that, but I think it's clear to everyone that this is this is Barbara's big anthem and hard to even imagine the song in someone else's voice. All right, so let's just do the vamp there. Let's talk about that. Um, already, we've got this coiled, tense, excited music, this really, really A-plus, top-notch vamp. Dun, 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 dun. It's kind of building. It's contained. It's it's just like coiled is really the, the word that I have for it there, and I stand by that. It just, we can feel how much it's being like held in, but there's so much energy just waiting to burst out there. And that's exactly what she feels too, right? She's about to do something both really exciting, which is give up everything to chase the man she loves, and a little crazy and terrifying. And you can hear it there right in that vamp. And it's it's like a good song. You know, it's like this major kind of like, oh, yes. But at the same time, there's something a little bit like scary about it. And of course, the don't almost like interrupts that rhythm, uh, which works because she's interrupting everybody who's telling her not to do it. So don't. She's just going to cut right in with that. Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Okay, so we get the first uh, verse here. And already I have some questions. Uh, grammatically, and it's funny to even question this because I feel like this song is so famous that everybody knows these lyrics, but when you actually think about them, they're a little bit like, what are you talking about? So I am pretty sure what she means is like, don't tell me not to live and and to just sit and putter. Um, but it's a little unclear what that sit and putter is. Um, you know, it, it could potentially be like, don't you sit and putter and tell me this thing. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's the first one. Um, and then we also get life's candy and a, and the sun's a ball of butter, which like, you know, okay. Uh, great images. What are we talking about here? I am pretty sure she is talking about life is exciting. She's just learned that having this like taste of love with Nick. Um, and she wants to go live it. She doesn't want to be uh, at home sitting and puttering um, and being told not to live. But again, not totally clear. It sounds good. Sounds like stuff that we like. We support it. But um, what are we talking about? And then, of course, we get to don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Cloud being kind of the punched out word there. Um, that's what she, which feels uh, smart because that is the thing that she is uh, objecting to here. Like, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, she's, she's punching away this kind of cloud that people are bringing to rain on her joyous thing. Um, and it's interesting, like this is uh, a very famous phrase and I'm pretty sure it's because of this song. I think this song coined this phrase. I couldn't find any examples of it being used before that. So uh, that's cool. Um, love that when that happens. And obviously it means like, don't be a party pooper. Don't uh, yuck my yum to use the par popular parlance. Um, and of course we, we have a third metaphor and it's only the third line of the song. We're going to have a lot more. Don't tell me not to fly. I simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on my parade? Okay, so the scansion in this section is a little off. The emphasis is on to, not got to, um, which isn't how you say it. You really would emphasize 
uh, got to. Um, and if someone takes a spill, it sounds a little crowded, although it's not quite technically crowded. But but I love that. I love that this feels a little bit messy. It feels like she's not totally in control of the song yet. Um, she's still making an impulsive decision. She hasn't really totally thought it through yet. Um, she's not standing her ground. She's just a little bit agitated still. And we can hear that in the lyrics. And, you know, if if I'm being really generous, I would say that that's maybe why we're getting these kind of confused metaphors as well. Um, she's she is kind of flying by the seat of her pants she's acting um with her gut she's not really thinking it's through so she's so her so she's the brain part is not totally clear on what she's doing um which is why we're getting this kind of messy stuff that's if i'm being generous if i'm not being generous i'm saying there's a few songs in this show frankly that I find a little confusing and a little bit non-specific, so I think that might just be an issue with the songs in this show. But let's be generous and say that that is all uh, very intentional. And of course, we have this section is a little bit uh, clearer. Don't tell me not to risk it. It's only I, my neck that I'm risking. Um, but again, it's not really specific to her actual situation. She's not saying like I'm going to leave my career and follow a man. It might end badly. She's saying take a spill, fly, vibes. You know, we're we're in the world of the general, which kind of refers to her situation, but doesn't refer to it specifically. Um, does that help this song kind of live on its own? Uh, sure. Is that part of the intention of it? I don't know. I mean, look at the most popular song song I've ever wrote was Send in the Clouds, which is extremely, Send in the Clowns, rather, sorry, I'm, I've got clouds on my mind from this show. Um, sending the clowns is very specific to a certain circumstance, um, although it's also metaphorical, and that seems to do fine. So, you know, what do I know? I always think that's kind of interesting. Anyway, let's keep going. And I also, uh, I just want to note, too, that the orchestrations have this kind of um, joyous parade after she stops singing, which I really kind of like. It's like, it, it's giving us, it's it's assisting her in imagining this parade. How much my band out? Okay, so now the music gets away from this more tense, excited, you know, uh, place and breaks into out into something more joyful. She's growing more confident in her decisions. She's celebrating this part of it. Um, and then when she's imagining not winning, the melody gets a lot more contained and small. Uh, she'd be bummed, but she's willing to whisk it, risk it. It doesn't sound like it's the end of the world. Um, and of course, we get the extension of this parade metaphor. She's the parade itself. And more metaphors, uh, from a parade to a baseball game, uh, your turn at bat, sir, like the next person is going to try it, I guess. Although, again, you know, who is she singing to specifically? What is she talking about here? Um, to a party where she's giving your hat when you leave. Um, none actually her situation. She's really bopping between these various things. Um, you know, again, is it because she's kind of scattered is it because this is just uh how some of the lyrics are not super helpful for this particular circumstance in the same way that the song people is not particularly specific to this circumstance i don't know it depends on you know depends on the day but whether on the rose of sheer perfection or freckle on the nose of life's complexion the cinder or the shiny apple of the 
because I'm a comer. I simply gotta march, my heart's a drummer. Don't bring around a cloud of rain on my parade. Okay, so now um, we get this interesting little section where she's talking about whether she's the rose of sheer perfection. Um, and it's the vein of either or. Like now it's become personal to her, like whether she is good or she is bad. Um, this is she's got to do this thing but this and th I do think this is very specific this is uh, a very fanny thing to do her version of good or bad imagining whether she's good or bad is related to beauty you know whether she's the rose of sheer perfection or the freckle on the nose of life's complexion like either she's a beautiful rose or she's a blemish right on the nose of life like the most identifiable thing and you know we've gotten a little nose references in this show before so we get that but we see this about fanny throughout the show that she really um whether she is beautiful is of great concern to her so uh it makes total sense that she would imagine being kind of generally good and bad in this uh framework and then we get this kind of interesting swinging and playful melody. I gotta fly once, I gotta try once, only can die once. Um, and interestingly, now she's talking about, she's talking to a sir who is not clear. I guess it's Nick, sort of. Um, this would co coincide with her tone with him, which is often very playful and almost kid-like compared to him. Um, who's very suave and adult. Uh, when she first meets him, she is kind of a kid. So it does feel like this kind of playful, uh, flirtatious thing that she's doing in this verse would would match that. And then, of course, she's she's overtly um, talking to him, get ready for me, love, because I'm a comer, um, which is a thing I've never heard before, but apparently is like a person or thing that is promising. And then we're getting back to the band parade metaphor, which comes back a few times. I'm gonna live and live now. Get what I want, I know how. One roll for the whole shebang. One more that bell will go clang. I on the target and wham. One shot, one gunshot and bam. Hey, mister. So now we get this entirely new thing, which is a section that goes back and forth between two notes and keeps shifting to another two notes a little too a little higher. Um, the song does not really have a standard structure, and I and this, I love that this kind of thing comes at us at this point in the song. Um, but I I love that two notes uh, back and forth, back and forth, because it really feels like she's planting her two feet. You know, she's really stubborn. She's determined to do this. She's holding her ground. Um, and we can really hear that in that sort of like, she's she's climbing to the top and she's just determined to make this happen. Um, and I also love that all of these metaphors here, um, a lot of metaphors in the song are fairground games. Uh, she's gonna roll, she's gonna throw and have a bell ring. She's gonna shoot a target. Um, those are all things that would happen if you were just at a little, you know, county fair. She's saying she's going to win, um, which is different from earlier in the song where she was more aware of the possibility of her not winning. That seemed to be like an equal 
um, idea for her. But now that part is gone. She's determined that she will win. She will uh, make this happen with Nick. This is going to work out. And I love that she's talking about a very a mild form of gambling here um, in all these fairground games. That is that is what you're doing with these games. You are paying money and you are potentially winning more money, um, but on a very small scale, on a very small, innocent scale. So she's speaking Nick's language a bit because Nick, of course, is a gambler, um, but on a much more uh, adult and potentially dark scale. So it's a, a reminder of who she's in love with and of her spirit because she's determined to win. Um, but also that she's not really in his league. Um, he is very much an adult. He is very much um, someone with experience. He is very much someone who is has a dark side, who is potentially uh, manipulative, who is potentially losing money, who is potentially doing illegal things. Um, and and her version of that is a fairground game. Like the stakes are much different. Um, and then of course the song has this great, hey, Mr. Arnstein, here I am, which does so much. I mean, it's just like, it's such a big cry from the heart. Um, it's hard not to just love her for that. She's just putting herself out there for him. Um, even though we probably at this point feel that she's making the wrong decision, um, for herself and for her life. Uh, and I think the show will support that. We we cannot but love how much she loves him and how much she is just going for it. And that is just something to be admired. So um, really after this moment, we are on her side. Um, even if we haven't been up until this point, we're kind of rooting for her, uh, even though we we wish she hadn't made this decision and had just gone to Chicago with uh, the Ziegfeld Follies. So obviously everything there is a reprise in one way or another, but but the tone of it is different. We're really getting this kind of like confidence and determination in a way that at the beginning of the song, some of that felt like anxiety and not being really placed. But now this music is just, it is on her side. It is supporting her. She is just on board with all of this. She is ready. She's going to go out there. And if she doesn't win, it's not going to be a problem because you know what? She's not going to win. She's not going to lose. Um, it really feels like she is a force to be reckoned with. We've got that all in this music, just just rolling under her and that great return of the vamp at the end um, as she's hitting that big note. Like nobody is going to rain on her parade. No one's going to uh, get in the way of her joy. And so that metaphor which kind of went from being 
something that was like, don't ruin my party, basically, has now become something that feels a little bit different in, the, in this last moment. It just kind of feels like nobody has the capacity, no, like no one would even be capable of ruining that. Uh, the force behind this now has changed to something that is really more of a solid, solid, like, you know, cry of strength and power and love and determination and confidence. Um, and again, we are so on her side, even if we wish she had not done this. Um, so it's a really great song. Um, I think you cannot argue that it is not a great song. It has truly become iconic uh, in the show, in the movie, it is such a declaration of determination, of heart, of somebody um, claiming her own destiny in a real way. And I love it for that. I think this music especially is just using that kind of bombardment of this like vamp, the the energy of just this like almost relentless like coming at you with this joy um, just captures so much what Fanny is. Uh, is it full of metaphors that kind of make me question what is going on? And I don't, I wish there was a little more of a sense of what exactly she's talking about sometimes. Yes, I could use a little bit more specificity. Yes, thank you. Um, I don't feel totally confident in all of these lyrics. Um, they do feel a little bit, it's funny because like, I feel like in the history of the song, uh, the show that we talked about. Um, there were obviously a lot of people who came in to write this show, a lot of people who came in to work on this show, a lot of people who um, were potentially involved at some place, at some points who came in and left. Um, a bit of a confused uh, process uh, that literally you know, the child of, of Fanny and Nick is a major figure in this. Like it, it is by all accounts a bit of a, a mishmash process to get to sh the show to where it was. And I think some of these songs really show that and the number of songs that they cut, but also the songs that are in the show um, feel to me a little bit like songs that are written when the the plot around them is not 100% solidly clear. Um, they're written to kind of be a little bit general. Um, and this, I think, is is one of them. Uh, I think the, the music gets the tone absolutely. The lyrics are a little bit strange for me, but um, doesn't really matter ultimately because it has become so iconic. So does anyone really listen to these lyrics beyond their like very A plus vibes? Um, probably not. And do we need to? Only if we're doing a podcast in which we overanalyze songs that everybody loves already. So you know, that is what I will say but it's a great song. And that brings us to our favorite segment, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with Funny Girl, both internal and external. So we've already started this conversation in many ways because it's it, it, the problems are, are myriad, both internally and externally. Um, but I, I want to start with the problematic nature of the message of the show and i am not one for uh you know over labeling things as problematic or not great i do think that this show there is a conversation to be had about like what message it's sending i think i think there are many shows that get pushed into oh it's sending a bad message to women in particular about their self-worth their status everybody loves to harp on greece 
um, that like you should change yourself for your man. And like, I don't really know that that's actually the message of Greece. Like he also changes for her and tries to be a jock and it fails spectacularly. So, and also why are we shaming Sandy for embracing a little bit of her like darker, sexier side? Like, I think it's okay. She's a bit of a drip, but we're not talking about Greece. So, and like, you know, Paracel gets obviously that's like the top of the list for problematic musicals um, that people deem problematic when we inevitably do carousel on this program, we will dive into that. Um, Cause I have very strong feelings about that. Um, but I do think that this show actually has way more um, problems that it's endorsing a really not great, a really not great relationship and not healthy relationship and glorifying it and not really properly labeling it as tragic. I don't think they really want you to like, Oh, feel bad for Fanny or like what didn't Fanny accomplish because of, her relationship they never really give voice to that so it if they want that it's all implied um and i just don't think they actually want that i don't i i think they kind of wanted to be tragic and say that like wow how incredible that this woman was such a great performer but also was willing to like give it up for her man and 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 that is true somewhat to life right that is a little bit fanny rice's story she is the the first queen of the torch song um, which they do a wonderful job with in the music that makes you dance replaced in the film by her iconic song, my man. Um, you know, there are like reasons to do that. Um, and I'm not sure how you necessarily accomplish it, but like talk about your feelings about the the messaging of the show, Annika, because it, it's tough. And I'm not sure. I, I, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I'm just not sure how you, how you square that when, when, when looking at the show. I mean, yeah, I I really do have trouble with that because I I just don't I mean, as I said, it's hard for me to determine from the script what we are supposed to think about that. I mean, it it feels a little bit like the show is totally on board with the idea that, you know, she is she's she wants to be pretty. Um you know, Nikki, this this glamorous, handsome, suave playboy um, who can have his pick of women, like wants her, which is clearly very appealing. And I totally understand that. I'm I'm with the show. Um, and then, you know, I mean, it's funny because I feel like in some ways the end of act one is sort of like, which is don't wait, rain on my parade. It's I feel it feels similar to Gypsy a little bit to me because it's that same sort of like, I mean, also it's at a train station. So, you know, we've got that going on, but and like the Stein score, I mean, <laughs> the Julie Stein score. Um, but, and also this like kind of last minute decision that this main character makes. I mean, in gypsy, obviously it's, it's Rose saying like, you know, um, we're going to keep on going with the act after, after Louise has left and you just feel sick in the pit, pit of your stomach that like, they're not going to, they have their chance to to escape this this grind after, and after June I don't want to get it after June left not Louise oh sorry after June left not Louise thank you um and I feel like there's there is that to this show as well it's like she decides to leave the fall follies behind um you can see that like her friends think that she's making some weird decisions already she's starting to like buy all this fancy stuff that she didn't do before because she's been spending this time with Nikki she's starting to live this kind of luxurious life and then she's going to she's going to leave behind this career that she worked so hard to get to go and be with him um but 
it's not clear that it's a bad thing, you know? And then like the top of the second act is so much about, you know, her wanting to be this married lady and her wanting, her wanting, her trying to accommodate Nikki, um, who is feeling emasculated by being with someone who is more successful than he is basically. Um, which on the whole is such a common theme in musicals. I hate to say it, but like, and, and not an uncommon one even today, which is a really sad thing to say, but I feel like the problems that I had with like beautiful are the same. It's like, there are a lot of shows that are about successful and um, powerful women that end up being kind of hijacked by how hard it is to be a man in a relationship with or um, around these successful women. And I hate that so much. I can't even put it into words. Like I, it's such a, it's such a, like, you don't notice it necessarily, but it's sort of like, why, why is that always what it has to be? Why doesn't it, why can't it just be about like a woman being successful and powerful? And that's great. You know, like, (laughs) you know, to push back on it a little bit, because I totally hear what you're saying. And I obviously don't disagree, but that also is a real problem that people face in the world, right? Like in a toxically masculine world, like that is a real thing that people face. I think it's ultimately like in the case of beautiful, she moves on beyond that relationship. Right. And we see, I I mean, she, we see her empowered outside of the relationship. She decides to move on, like get rid of them. And I'm still going to be me. And I'm still going to do that. We don't really get that from Van. No, we definitely don't. Like, that's that's my central issue is like, it's fine and dandy. Like, even if it's revisionist history to say that Fanny moved on from Nikki Arnstein and like, you know, but like. She did. She did. She, she had a lot, like he just disappeared from her life and then. But I'm, I'm saying like in that moment in time, Mm -hmm. even if that's revisionist history, like, you know. You know, no, you're you're totally right. Tried, she loved, she failed. Like the the yeah. relationship failed, but that doesn't mean she's a failure and she's gonna keep on going. Like I would well, feel better, but that's just not what it implies. Yeah. Well, also, I I would love someone in this show to make the point to her of like, so who cares that you're not a a, sh- a conventional showgirl? You know, like like it kind of breaks my heart those moments where she's like oh my daughter is pretty right my daughter is pretty and i'm like that is so sad you know to have this woman like that it it just is it's it's weird there's all these different threads that i feel like they don't really choose between you know like and and it's funny cuz i lo- i went back and i looked at the review of the original production and they had the same problem i do which is that like you know, the show is great when it's about Fanny, this scrappy, funny, ballsy, young girl who wants to be on stage and doesn't really care so much that she's, you know, not pretty because she knows that she's the greatest. I mean, this is the character who sings, I'm the greatest star. She doesn't sing like, oh, gee, I wish I were a showgirl. She knows herself. She knows who she is. She knows she's got tons to offer. And she like, you know, basically like manipulates her way into getting what she knows she deserves, which is like a place in the spotlight because she's amazing, you know, and everybody is kind of like, wow, look at this girl. I didn't 
think that she would be this person and then she is this person. And that is a great story. And I want to hear so much more of that. And there are so many little nuggets in this script about like when she's talking to Ziegfeld and she's like, I choose my own songs, like right away, you know, mm-hmm. that is a character I want to know about. And then the whole second act is like, you see, basically all you see of her career is that like, oh, she's in the Follies. Oh, here's the number she's doing in the Follies. Like, and it becomes so much about her getting bogged into this, like, oh, she has to be, she has to make it better for Nikki. It it becomes, Nikki becomes the protagonist in the second act, basically, because it becomes about like his sad feelings about, you know, how, how much she's outstripping him as a, as a person and you know and and don't don't get me started on the song i am woman or you are woman i am man like oh, you are one robert mm-hmm. goulet visiting from courtesy of will ferrell i mean honestly please <laughs> that like that it's so bad <laughs> i would i would prefer that but yeah so anyway so the show kind of like starts out on this trajectory of like you're going to learn about this amazing woman and then it becomes by the end like this you know Oh well, who is who is where is that person? Where is that Fanny that we met in the beginning? Because now what we have is this woman who's like willing to give away everything that she worked so hard for. Um for this man who makes her feel attractive, I guess. It it just but it's not portrayed as something that is sad. Um, you know, there it's just it's just given as kind of fact, like, well, and it's so it's it feels so odd to me. It feels so odd to me tonally because that stuff is so present in the beginning that it just feels like it becomes this other show. And I don't, and I, you know, as you said, like the history of the show, there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of things. I mean, the fact that it, the, the daughter of Fanny and Nikki was there as part of this process is like, obviously something that would have carried a lot of weight. I don't know what her particular feelings were about Nikki and her mother's like relationship like what about her parents relationship basically but obviously that always brings a lot of baggage so i don't know how much to lay this at the feet of different people because it doesn't feel to me like the script that isabel leonard started writing is the script that she ended writing um and i'd love to i mean personally i i I think there's so much life and vitality in the the beginning of the script and i love the character of fanny so i think i'm trying to give it credit for like at be the more interesting shows that I see in there that are not actually in there. Because as we get to act two, like I, I think what I'm hearing you say, and I you're saying it probably more eloquently than I would, is like it's or what I'm thinking is like I wish that there were more actual more complexity in the second act. It deals with all of it very simplistically, which allows for like there and alluding I guess to what I said earlier like this is a real situation that people find themselves in that like and navigating a not great relationship and how do I try to have both and do I actually want this person more than I want this career and like that is a real thing that people experience that I don't want to like take away from but there's that's not even really like what we're talking about like it just never to that it just is like oh well no I'm gonna do like she doesn't get a like she doesn't nope. get what's the use of wondering. Like she doesn't get, yeah. and which you know, carousel aside, like the music that makes me dance is really a performance inside the follies. And like, yes, yeah, it, it mirrors that, like on some level. But I just don't really, I, I don't. It it doesn't feel fulfilling that this. 
I, I kind of lost my train of thought, but it, no, it, no, but there's I a world, know. there's a world in which it, I think it's not problematic if it were written a little bit differently or the point of view was just like a little more nuanced or we got a little bit more from outside yeah. characters or like other people where she could like say her heart or feel what she's saying. But like, yeah, it feels like it wants to get to that last scene where he wants to leave, but actually she wants to stay she wants to keep going with this, but he wants to be done. And it like wants that like moment, whatever she says when it's like, Oh, she decides to like put the wall back up and say like, no, no, no. I just don't want it to be tragic. Like, but she won't actually like admit that she means for him. Like it feels like it wants to build to that. And like, because it does build to that. And yet, like, I think there's, I don't know. I, it just, it's missing some meat on, it's missing some meat for me to like actually feel like it's not problematic if this is. No. Yeah. Well, to put it another way, like I, I think what my problem is, is that you, you know, obviously with any protagonist's journey, um, the question at the end is like, what have they learned? What have they realized? What have they learned? And I think what would make me feel so much better about this story is for Fanny to have learned or had a moment where she has realized that her marriage with Nikki is not good for her. Um, more and and there's I think you're you're totally right that like his the music that makes me dance is the closest we get to that. That's sort of like I know he's bad, but I love him anyway. So there she doesn't seem to sort of realize that. She doesn't seem to have a moment where it's like, you know what? I am an ama- like I am exactly where I wanted to be. I am making a million people laugh. I'm a huge star. I, I am something that nobody before me has been. Um and that is who I am. Like how dare you make me feel small? Um there's there's nothing. We don't get growth from that character actually. We get negative growth almost. And and I and maybe it's too pat because you're right. It is hard for people in those positions, like people are in those relationships. Um, but it doesn't feel like it's nuanced enough, really, to to make me feel like, oh no, that's like that's what this show is. It feels like the show is keeping very much in a musical comedy world. And and I love her, and I want her to be able to say to him, like, I love you and you are garbage. Get out of my life. And the fact that he's the one who comes and that she's, she's ready to give up everything for him. And then, you know, he comes in and is like, yep, I guess we should break up. And then she's like, okay, sure. Let's break up. Like the fact that she is basically in essence dumped just cuts out all power under from under her. And I just, I find it so like, offensive i find it really hard to take the end of the show because i'm just like and when she says to to zigfeld that thing about like oh i'm gonna quit probably like you got to be ready for that i'm like oh my god what are you doing like nobody in this room is like like this is so sad this is you're watching your friend in an abusive relationship you know like i crave for her to have that moment of like yeah screw you nikki arnstein and then she doesn't really except for as a sort of like well i'm gonna break up with you first (laughs) you know like sort of like it because it yes it's weird because it doesn't ever like even it doesn't even really give a moment for her to be like you know what like the trappings of stardom and my talent and making people laugh like it it doesn't really ever seem to have the moment 
except at the end of act one, like she says some of these things at the end of act one, like you can't take an audience home with you. I love the guy and he loves me. And like, she gets some of that in act one. She doesn't get any of it in act two. Like that I think is my problem is like, that yeah, she, she doesn't get any of that. And I would actually be okay. I'd be more okay with the way it ends. If I got some of those things, like, you know what? I've decided, Something. I decide I I've realized that like, actually I do want to have companionship and you know, and and like let that be that's then appropriately tragic that she loses out on this relationship but like there's hope that maybe she'll find better companionship moving forward or something like yeah that gives me a little bit as opposed to like it just feels constricted by like musical comedy conventions in a way that's not helpful that like i don't think it needed to and i or should and i wonder sometimes too i'm going to use this as a transition to talk about like is the show well written like i i it, it does it falls into a lot of like biomusical traps and star performance basically what i want to say is how much of barbara streisand's electric performance was completely glossing over like so many issues that like she was just able to kind of piece it all together in a way that made it all kind of make sense and didn't feel like bad at the end and uh, she just kind of was able because you were watching this absolute star being born like you were watching when she stands on stage and says i'm the greatest star like you know 1500 people at the winter garden every night were like mm-hmm, indeed yes you are the greatest star like everybody's like mm-hmm, yes you are and like how much of that is able to paper over the larger issues with this show that are just like glaringly obvious when it's like you know on the black and white page in front of us uh i think the answer is probably a lot um because i mean i think part of it too is that you know I want more of watching Fanny become the star. You know, I want to know more about how she made this comedy, how she, you know, all these, uh, that I want to know about more about her professional life, about her being the star that she was with the show kind of uh, leaves behind at some point. And I feel like when you have a star like, like um, Barbara Streisand, she's she's giving you that automatically you're kind of getting how she became this gigawatt star because barbara streisand is a gigawatt star so i i think you can kind of like that that can hold a lot of the storytelling of that part of the show which actually needs to be more in the script um and yeah i think you know uh, as i said i think that barbara streisand of it all is kind of a, a curse and a blessing because I think these songs sung by Barbra Streisand, you know, these moments have become so a part of like history um, that the show has kind of like elbowed its way into the canon. But I, I don't, I don't think it totally deserves that. I mean, when, when you read the script, I think like, obviously, as we've said many times, I think I, I love act one of this show. I, and I have so many ideas about like, I love the show that this could be. I love the show that is about, you know, why this woman feels like she has to be beautiful above all things and goes into that in in real depth. I love the show that's about uh, this scrappy, un, unusual person becoming a star. Um, I love the show that's about this really interesting figure in history. And then I hate Act Two. And I also feel like a lot of the songs in the show, and I know they wrote like a, a, a mind-boggling number of songs for the show and cut like 41 of them or something like that. Um, a lot of them, I still am like, this, what is this song? Like, I mean, I agree with, what is it, Jerome Robbins, who who thought that people should be cut? 
No, no, no. It's Bob. It's Bob Fosse and Garson Cannon. Bob Fosse and Garson Cannon. I agree. I think it's a great song, and I think it makes no sense in the show. So I think there's these like weird. The show is kind of trafficking in this kind of like. I think it got kind of caught at an earlier stage of development for whatever reasons, um, partially, I thought, clearly because it became, you know, that became the big number that Barbara Streisand was known for. So it kind of had to live in the show. But yeah, to me, this feels like a good example. I mean, it's funny. It's, I think, I think you're right with like to bring it up with Camelot. I, it feels like an unfinished show for me that I really love the finished version that exists in my head and impossibility right because right. even like the movie i mean we don't need to talk about the movie the movie does not hold up near as well as like a lot of those other like classic yeah. like it's just not as well made as a lot of those other films but even but also even people like that lyric always bothers me a little like people people who need people are the luckiest people in the world like we're children needing other children and it, like it lives in like a false sense of like depth that like actually makes no sense and don't get me wrong i love the song i still sing it i still play it in the car and just song people who need people like yeah right. I, come on it's a great it's a great song but like what does it mean and like it no. doesn't come out of left field meanwhile also- like the score is so like some of this like it is stacked full of great songs um yeah and then you get like you are a woman and like hen and you're like oh my god let's move i mean but at least henry street is like uh the right tone of song at that moment like you are woman boggles my mind because i'm like this is like a suave elegant seduction in a restaurant this is like the playboy of the year and and fanny deciding to do this kind of like very adult thing that she's never done before and then you listen to this music that's like it's so like dippy not to mention i mean just the pure misogyny of the lyrics but like you know i was like what this like weird up this should be like a suave seductive like come on let's do this thing like you know, like she, it is a seduction and, and it's like a you go out to like the fa- I mean, it's it's such a bizarre choice for me that to in that, in that moment, I'm just like, what? It also is like, a, I think because they didn't totally love Sidney Chaplin. And so they just kept like, right, like not giving him things. But like, ultimately, we are actually missing a song where she falls in love with Nikki Arnstein and we fall in love with Nikki Arnstein. Right. Like, yes. That's and that's the t- that's the place. Form. Like it's that's the play, like, and it even could happen earlier. But he needs some kind of number that's like, oh, suddenly we're all like, we want to, you know, sorry to the the delicate listeners, but like we all want to drop our panties for Nick Arnstein because like, oh, yeah. like oh, and now we're willing to go on this like really, you know, tumultuous journey with him because we have actually fallen in love with him in the same way we fell in love with her, and so we want them to work out and they don't like yeah. missing that. And I don't know if that's just because they were. And so it almost makes it all the more, I'm going to say concerning that like this latest revival that like went in with revisions and like tried to do some things like didn't attack some of these problems because I, I don't, I, I don't mean to say that we are geniuses and everyone should listen to us. Although I do think that um, at least Annika is a genius and everyone should listen to her. Like w- it doesn't seem that hard to me. Like some of the things that like could be tweaked and fixed to like make this actually yes. like, totally work. It just doesn't seem that hard. And yet that's not what we got with this revival. So I, I, I mean, I 100% agree. And thank you. I think you're a genius, Michael. Oh, Plank, we so. don't need to like jerk each other off on the podcast. It's really <laughs> like, like, 
I just don't think it's that hard. Like, no, this, these are like, these are fundamental like things to fix, but they're not. Yeah. Hard to well, and yes, I agree. Especially since the threads of them are so present already in the show. It's not like you're taking a show and fundamentally changing the DNA of the show. Like the, the breadcrumbs are in there. You just have to follow them to their uh, fleshed out fulfillment basically you know and and i i cannot believe i couldn't believe when i was reading after having seen the revival reading the original script and being like they didn't change anything in this pretty much it's kind of the same so yeah, i too I identify off the top of my head what they changed i know they added a song for nikki and act two but i'm like where's the act one <laughs> yeah and act one i agree with you was in really good shape but yeah i mean i still have notes in act one but it's a much i mean i think it's a bunch better uh yes, 100%. yeah yeah. And that will bring us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things in Funny Girl. Okay, Annika. So possibly the hardest question that we will be asked in the course of this podcast, as far as I'm concerned, what is your favorite song in Funny Girl? Uh, this is pretty easy for me. It's You Are Woman. No, I'm kidding. I hate that song so much. <laughs> I was like, first off, I was like, what do you mean it's easy? I was like, I've had so much struggle with this question. <laughs> oh, it you know, it, it is it's not hard for me, actually, because uh, I really love music that makes me dance. I just think that's a gorgeous song. See, and I, I do like it. I am not upset that it gets replaced by my man in the movie, because I also think my man is such a great song. Uh, so I don't really miss it. So that's why like that one is like lower on the on the poll for me. Um, cause like what's struggling for me is like, don't rain on my parade really is like one of my favorite songs of all time. It just feels like such an obvious and basic answer to this question. Um, like don't rain on my parade is truly like my pump up song. Like if I need to be pumped up going into something, I will listen to that song and I'm like, I can do anything. But also like, even though it's largely the same song, I think I'm the greatest star is so good. It is such a good song. And like, uh, come on, like, how do you not fall in love with, someone who delivers that song like it's and then but then also like cornet man cornet man's a great song yeah there's some good songs in this it's and i so anyway I, so, but i have to say don't worry my parade as obvious as it is it's just but it, i just wish i could have a more interesting answer but it's just so good yeah okay so are we is there any world in which your favorite character is not fanny bryce actually yes i mean okay so who's your favorite character in funny girl Okay, so so Fanny Act One definitely is my favorite character. Um, but I also really love Eddie. I, and I think... Yeah, yeah, go say it. Speak on it. I, I think Eddie is a character that could be expanded, but I think he's really interesting, and I think he's functioning really interestingly in the show. Um, so for for the promise of Eddie, um, I'll, I'll give that answer. You know, to go back to the other section we don't really get a closing scene with Eddie. Like he's a character that. Yeah. And it actually would be really great if Eddie came back and said, Fanny, I don't know why it's taken you 30 years or however long to see how great, like to actually understand how great you are and how lovable you are and why this man, like I've loved you for 20 years and I've yes. you for 20 years. And like, I don't know why it's taken you this kind of pain to see it for yourself. Like there could be a really lovely poignant scene between the two of them where like, I believed in you always and I wish you fully believed in you as much yes. as like 
because I agree, Eddie's a great character and Jared Grimes also did a fantastic job in the revival. I love Jared Grimes, but like, so, but it's, I, I agree that he's an interesting character that's underexplored. I 1000% agree. And I feel like, again, that's another breadcrumby moment where it's like, you feel that a little bit, like he asks her out and she doesn't go for it. And, and he never, he never liked Nikki. Like, I, I totally agree that there's a little bit of like, you should be loved vibes in from sideshow. Like he would be the character to really say to her, like, this is what Fine. are you doing? Like you, yeah. you, you know, um, but I, I'm going to go ahead and say Fanny. Cause obviously it's funny girl and it's Fanny. So she's going to be my favorite character. I've got a basic, basic answer. So I'm going to go first with my favorite miscellaneous thing. Cause I, this is like my total inner nerd. I think for as much as we talk about the book, a funny girl being a problem because it is structurally speaking, uh, it lays a foundation and groundwork for many other star vehicles to follow. And I say this specifically when it comes to Wicked. Wicked essentially follows the song formula of Funny Girl to a T. Interesting. It's not It's not like a complete one for one, but you've got If a Girl Isn't Pretty, No One Mourns the Wicked, uh, Wizard and I, Greatest Star, uh, then you get like midway through, like uh, certainly don't run my parade and defying gravity. Um, but you get like Henry Street and um, our wonderful uh, one short day. Like you get like Happy Village song like midway through Act One. Like they're structurally speaking um, very similar, very very similar um, things that it it sets up and and does. Um, and I. I think from a structural standpoint, it does a really good job of laying the groundwork for us to fall in love with Fanny and to really believe that she's a star. Um, but I think like there are just a lot of like parallels between like the star vehicle kind of show structure. And it, it, I think is like the, the first kind of example of how you structure a show around a star. I love that answer. I think that's such a smart and interesting answer. Like, cause it's not necessarily like the story driving it. It's more just like, this is how we're going to set our star up for success kind of thing. And a way that like, there are obviously star vehicles prior to funny girl. It just, it, yeah, it sets up, I think a lot of interesting rules, like talk about the protagonist before, like define, have the world define the protagonist before the protagonist defines the protagonist. Like there's just some interesting things that I think it does that it, it other shows have done before it but it does it very like well i think yeah now i love that answer i think that's really smart um very have, dramaturgically I sound full, i don't have the full like list of wicked songs in front of me but wicked to me is the most like obvious example of like it there are quite in, there are quite similar trajectories in terms of like production number cornet man dancing through life yeah popular who taught her what everything she knows like it starts it there starts to be like a huh yeah more than like it's a little conspiratorial but i'm like did you just like plant the structure of what did you just take this and be like oh and now we have wicked like it's a little fuzzy but yeah interesting um, what um about you? what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about funny girl well i will say that one thing i really do love about funny girl is the scenes especially the scene where it's after she's opened and there's a big party for her on henry street and you really get to meet some of her community and see what her community is like and i think 
uh, this show does that really beautifully. I think it's a really beautiful portrait of this this street, this bustling street um, in New York City and all these kind of like nosy neighbors who know your own business and, you know, show up at her like fancy, fancy Long Island mansion. And, you know, I, I think the moment where she's sitting with Nikki at the table and then like one of her neighbors randomly is like, Fanny, I was with the baby earlier, but thank you. You know, I was like looking at that line because I'm like, it's such an interesting moment kind of unnecessary but also because you never meet that character i mean like who's you know um but but i think it's a great like reminder in that moment of like just how uh communities like that function at this time and um especially since it's very much like this community is immigrants mostly it's like the jewish people um there and the irish people it's all like um that kind that piece of New York. And I, I really love that. I think it's very clearly drawn. Um, and it just feels cozy. It just reminds you that Fanny has this like support network always for her, which is great. And I, I love that answer because we have not spent a lot of time talking about that, but I agree that that is also a very like fundamental part of the show and the world building of the show that I think helps, you know, helps us ingratiate, um, helps the audience ingratiate themselves to Fanny and understand more about her. But it also is part of what's living in that like old musical comedy world of like, Oh, in one scenes and little things, but they are a delightful bunch of little characters. Mrs. Uh, Miss Straykosh and all the, and all the, the neighborhood ladies that play poker or whatever they're, yeah. playing, whatever they're playing bridge, maybe what are they playing? I don't no, know. I think it is poker, but then they have, a, they have another game that they say at one point that I had never heard of before. It's not only poker. No, there um, is a real like gambling motif, you know, high risk, high reward mm-hmm. answer for why God, why that could string, could string through the show in terms of gambling and whatnot. Just saying. See another interesting place. That this show could, could go that it doesn't quite. And that'll bring us to our penultimate segment, corner of the sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. I think it's undeniable that this show, as we've talked about already, Barbara Streisand, Barbara Streisand, Barbara Streisand. Uh, I'm also paranoid that I'm saying her last name incorrectly. Like, would she correct me? Because it's supposed to, is it supposed to be the S or the Z? I now never remember. I think it's the S, right? It's Streisand. Sand, not Streisand. I believe that's correct. I never, I'm now I'm terrified. The gays can at me. Um, But the, uh, Anyway, I, it's undeniable that it's she is the everything of this show. I mean, also, like, would we still be talking about Fanny Bryce as a person today if this musical and movie didn't exist? I think the answer is probably slim to none. She would live a little bit in the, like, Sophie Tucker world of, like, people who were stars of their time. But, you know, she had some movie credits and things, so maybe we would still be talking about Fanny Bryce. But she's a part of the popular imagination because of the show. Um, but I mean, and like I said, the star vehicle structure thing, I think is a fun little Easter egg about it. But Annika, what about, what about you? What do you see as this show's, um, place in the canon? Yes. I mean, I think to, yes, to everything you said. Um, yeah, I know. I, I don't disagree about Fanny Bryce, but I do wish that there were another way that we could remember her that weren't, wasn't just about her desire to be pretty and loved. Um, and as the, you know, badass female Jewish comedian that she was, um, I think that is also a, a part of the show that we really hasn't haven't talked about enough. Um, probably that is that is a really important part of this show, which is that it is 
uh, a the story of a a Jewish woman is the undeniable protagonist star of this story, and um, that is a that is a really important thing because there are not a ton of uh, shows that center the story of a Jewish woman, and I think that is great. Um, so that is another part of this. I think that is an important element. Um, and allow her to be glamorous and gorgeous and all yeah. that she is, right? Like it is certainly a piece of like storytelling, art, literature, work. It's a piece of work that like means a lot to a whole lot of people because yeah. of the character and her biography and identity. And um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I totally agree. I think that's a huge part of it. And also like, I mean, a character woman, um, which actually musical theater, I feel like has a, doesn't, doesn't tend to have leading ladies who are kind of typical leading ladies in the way that we would like, you know, that Fanny Bryce would, would talk about. Like, I think there are actually a lot of really interesting, complex, funny, um, ladies who are the, the centerpieces of these shows. But, um, yeah, this is a, this is a funny, uh, awesome woman. Um, and that's important. A funny, awesome Jewish woman. A funny, awesome Jewish girl, or in that short, could have been the title of the show. Or in funny, short, funny, funny awesome Jewish lady. <laughs> or in short, funny Ooh. girl. <laughs> By and the way, was perfectly attractive. Maybe just not. They may not have Follies like a Ziegfeld Follies showgirl, but like you know, yes. this isn't. This is kind of actually. It's funny. I never thought about this before, but I feel like in some ways the show has a lot of overlap with Cyrano. A little bit. Interesting. Well, you know, it's like a main character who is very smart, very talented, who kind of doesn't quite believe in themselves because they don't believe themselves to be lovable because they are not conventionally attractive. Interesting. Okay. And partially for a big nose, although that's obviously more outlined in Cyrano than it is in um, sure. Funny Girl. But they do mention a nose a few times. Also, the back to the wicked of it all, the fact that she's different and physical appearance, too, is also a big. I yeah. Don't, anyway, don't try about that part. But Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into Funny Girl. Before we go, Annika needs to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So, Annika, what is the next show that we'll be getting to know? The next show we're going to dive into is based on the stories of two real people whose names were Beulah and Belva. But spoiler alert, that is not their names in the show. Until next time. (laughs) Until next time. Bye, everyone. (laughs) Bye, everybody. (laughs) 